Welcome to the Research Reimagine podcast, brought to you by Nottingham Trent University. I'm your host, Helen Darby-Dowman, and I'll be inviting some of NTU's brightest minds to explore how their research is helping us to deepen our understanding of the world. From online addictions to transgender rights and sleep disorders, listen as we discuss some of society's most pressing challenges and uncover some of the ways our research is making a difference. Thank you for tuning in to our very first podcast episode. Today we're going to be exploring a very interesting topic, which is the relationship between religious exorcism and the law. There's actually been a surprising surge in exorcisms throughout the world recently. Even a quick online search reveals hundreds of recent articles about increased exorcism demand, a rise in the use of this practice, as well as some pretty dark and horrendous stories from the people who have recently been exorcised. The Vatican is even holding exorcism training courses for priests because of this sudden rise. But should we be concerned? The thought of exorcism may bring to mind scenes from horror movies like The Exorcist or The Conjuring. But how accurate are these depictions? And how does the law actually apply to religious practices like exorcism? We're going to explore this topic today with our resident expert, Dr. Reverend Helen Hall, who is an associate professor here at Nottingham Trent University and also the director of the Centre for Rights and Justice. Welcome, Helen. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's not very often that I get to introduce a people as a doctor and a reverend. Your background is incredibly interesting. Can you maybe just talk to me a little bit about how you got to, to this point in your career? Uh, yes, of course. Um, I've certainly had a varied journey. Uh, I read law as an undergraduate, uh, practised as a solicitor for a little while, uh, realised that wasn't what I wanted to do with my time, at least all of my time, um, and was ordained uh, as an Anglican priest. And that's still a really important part of my identity. And both those aspects, the law and uh, the church, continue to be a big part of, of who I am and what I do. I think for, for many of us, perhaps those two areas seem quite conflicting. Do they, do they cause many challenges in, in your kind of work and working life? I wouldn't say challenges, no. Um, I'm quite busy, um, but that's no different to anyone else who chooses to have uh, a voluntary role or a voluntary work outside of a, a full-time job. And it's incredibly rewarding. So you don't mind uh, being busy when you're doing something that means a lot to you. And and for, for many people, our experience of exorcism, as we mentioned already, is like watching horror movies. I was reflecting on The Exorcist myself and how actually it just brings back memories of being a teenager at sleepovers, probably watching um, rated movies before I probably should have been. Um, you know, could you perhaps uh, explain to us a bit more about what actually exorcism and the practice of it is? Because those movies obviously show quite an extreme side of it. And I think it'd be beneficial to all of us and the listeners, you know, if you could just explain what exorcism is and why it's perhaps on the rise? Absolutely. I mean, I think one really important thing to get across is that this word exorcism includes a whole raft of different ideas and practices. And there's a big variety, both in terms of what people are doing and also the beliefs that are driving what they are doing. So uh, broadly speaking, exorcism means a right intended to free a person, a place, or sometimes even an object from some external negative spiritual influence. So that can definitely include things like um, the idea of a traditional Christian exorcism in some circumstances where 
there is a belief in a demon um, or in an Islamic context, a jinn, which is possessing or oppressing a person and there can be attempts to remove it. Uh, it can involve something much more low-key, um, possibly people walking around a house or an area, burning sage, something like that. And also for some people, exorcism can be very everyday. For some people, it's a normal part of their spirituality. It's nothing dramatic. It's maybe a few words spoken and then they move on. So although there can be some uh, very dramatic, even violent practices, not all exorcism takes that form. What does an exorcism actually look like? That's a really interesting question. And I mean, it goes back to what I said uh, a couple of moments ago in that there's no such thing as an exorcism. There are lots of different kinds of practice. So some of them might involve um, people sitting together in a church or a house and somebody saying prayers. Now, even that, what does that mean? That could mean somebody speaking quietly, not touching the person or just with a hand on their shoulder or holding their hand. Or it can sometimes mean somebody really screaming in somebody's face, maybe towering over them. The person who's receiving the exorcism similarly might be, you know, quiet and calm or they might be shouting, they might be on the floor, they might be convulsing, they might be even physically threatening the, the other person with, with furniture. It really depends what's quote unquote, well, I wouldn't say normal, but certainly usual within a particular context. Equally, it might mean using something like incense or burning something like sage leaves. It might mean splashing holy water in some traditions. It might mean ringing bells or even clapping. I think it's important to note that some forms of exorcism involve beliefs that the body of the person you're trying to exorcise is being inhabited, taken over, at least in part, by some form of evil entity. And there can be an effort to make that body an unpleasant place to be. With the logic being that if you make the body a really nasty place to be, then whatever it is will we'll want to get out of it pretty quickly. Now, unfortunately, this can lead to things like physical beating. It can lead to people being encouraged to drink unpleasant things like salt water or be deprived of food or to be kept in very cold or very hot conditions. Obviously, these kind of practices can be dangerous and can, in very many circumstances, be abusive. And we have to be real about the fact that these things go on and that they're problematic. But equally, you shouldn't think of these kind of extreme situations. The moment you hear, hear the word exorcism, there's a whole raft of, of different sorts of practices it might, it might involve. I know when I was looking online, obviously these very extreme practices are the ones that are often linked to. Is that true, or is it that we only is it true that we only see that one side of it? Um, you know, if you're actually trying to find out what it is from an outside point of view. I mean, I think there are several really interesting things in there to unpack. I mean, firstly, obviously, people want sensationalist things to, to watch and to click on. And that is what you're going to find if you go on Google or you go on YouTube. 
I mean, partly, I think some of the things which seem very extreme perhaps aren't perceived as being extreme by some of the participants. So whilst I might feel very uncomfortable at some of the scenes I've described of having someone shouting at another person who's perhaps appearing to resist, the people involved in that situation might both be consenting and actually be fine with what's going on. So just because something appears extreme doesn't necessarily mean it is. However, there are things which are genuinely extreme, the kind of violence and and abusive practices which I've just described. And I think we can't airbrush those out of the scene. And it's a question of being clear about what we're talking about. And again, I think not stereotyping, finding out what's going on in particular situations rather than making assumptions. And also it's worth noting that some of the practices which can be really harmful don't necessarily appear so dramatic. So for instance, telling somebody that their clinical depression is caused by a demon or telling someone that their same-sex attraction is being caused by a demon has potential to do immense uh, emotional and psychological damage but wouldn't necessarily appear to be one of the dramatic videos on YouTube. It might just appear two people sitting quietly and one merely speaking to the other. So identifying what's extreme isn't straightforward. And so how do we protect those people, those vulnerable people that perhaps don't, we don't see the extreme, you know, the physical hurt? Well, I think all we can do are um, legally address certain behaviours and certain practices which we know are harmful. So at the moment, there's a conversation going on around the prohibition of conversion therapy practices to try and change someone's sexuality or gender identity. And I would strongly uh, advocate for including religious practices like exorcism within a ban, for instance. Um, Similarly, to be perhaps more robust at regulating some of our counselling industries and some of the claims that it's um, possible to make about providing uh, cures for various psychiatric conditions would also be worth more attention. And why do you think it is on the rise or has been on the rise? I think there are lots of reasons for it. Um, Partly it's cultural, partly there's more awareness Uh, We live in an information age and the internet and social media mean that people have access to ideas. Um, Obviously, we live in a very multicultural society. Um, The United Kingdom is a different society from the one it was 60, 70 years ago. And we have access to more beliefs and ideas just around us in our everyday life. So I think those are probably two of the big factors going on. And, you know, can you talking about the law side of it? I mean, what does the law say about the practice of religious exorcism? Well, I mean, it's interesting in that it depends what is meant by that and what is actually going on. As a starting point, um, the right to freedom of religion and belief is uh, an important facet of our legal framework here. It's protected Um, by the European Convention on Human Rights, which is made part of our domestic law by the Human Rights Act. So the basic principle is that people have a right to express their profound beliefs, including their religious ones, 
in practical ways. However, the catch, and it's an important one, is that this isn't an absolute right. So it's a right which can be limited, firstly, when there's a good reason justifying the limitation, and secondly, as long as the limitation isn't disproportionate, as long as you're not taking a sledgehammer to crack a walnut. So this means if people are doing things in the name of exorcism, just as with any other religious practice, and they're causing some kind of demonstrable harm in doing so, then it's acceptable and indeed necessary for the legal framework to step in. So one obvious and tragic example, we've seen some horrendous instances of child abuse and exorcism has been put forward as an excuse for what has been taking place. Um, a well-known case, of course, is the tragic um, murder of the little girl, Victoria Klimbier. Unfortunately, there have been deaths of children and adults subsequently. And certainly, if you're doing something which is abusive, which is assault, then the law will step in just as it would step in in any other case of abuse or assault. And the fact that you're doing it in a religious or a spiritual context has no relevance. And, you know, is our law in the UK quite different to around the world? I think as a general principle of saying that religious freedom is important, um, but it's not um, the be all and end all and we will step in if we need to. That is an overarching principle is common to many countries that are within what you might broadly call the sort of Western liberal democratic tradition. However, Interestingly, what you recognize as harm varies a great deal depending on the cultural setting you're involved in. So, for instance, there have been some fascinating um, cases from uh, a U.S. context. Uh, one well-known instance when a young woman uh, fainted during a choir practice. And uh, as she was coming around drowsily, uh, the other members of the, the Pentecostal church that she was involved with were trying to drive out the demons that they believed had, had caused this, this lady to be unwell. Very unfortunately, but perhaps not surprisingly, she was very traumatized by this and she was desperately trying to get up and saying, no, no, please just, just leave me alone. They refused to do so. And uh, she suffered significant um, psychological injuries and sued after all of this. Now, the court in Texas and the appellate court said, well, um, you'd consented to this kind of thing, going to that particular church. Freedom of religion is important. And also we recognize that exorcism and deliverance ministry is a big part of what we do. We're not happy to interfere with this. I cannot imagine and I don't wish to tempt fate here, but I can't imagine a court in England and Wales would say a similar thing. So having this principle of religious freedom, but not to the point of harm, okay, but then how do you decide harm? And that is partly culturally influenced. So looking at the harm side of it, obviously within the UK, you're talking about the law and, and, and how if you're presenting physical harm to somebody, obviously there is protections in place for that. How about the psychological side of that? Can you talk to me a bit about, about that? I mean, it's certainly much more difficult to bring the criminal law in to psychological harm um, in practical situations. Um, but civil law would certainly, in theory at least, have something to say if you could demonstrate 
that there was a causal relationship between the harm that you had suffered and an exorcism and the kind of harm that you'd suffered was something that a doctor could recognize and diagnose. So civil law, generally speaking, won't provide compensation simply for being upset and having a negative emotional response. But if somebody suffers something like post-traumatic stress disorder, for instance, something that a doctor can diagnose, um, which is not beyond the bounds of possibility for some exorcisms, if somebody has been terrified and think that their life is in danger, that could happen, um, then in that case, there's no reason not to believe that somebody could successfully have a, a civil claim. And in terms of, you know, people choosing to have exorcism um, or feeling like they need to, you know, I think we have to have consent to be able to do it. But is there something around that challenge in terms of giving consent and the pressures that perhaps come with feeling like you need to because of the society that you're in? Absolutely. I mean, as we've said before, there are lots of different circumstances in which exorcism can take place. Um, but there are certainly some situations in which people can feel a great deal of pressure. That might be because they're struggling with mental health issues or they're struggling with dependence and, and substance abuse issues. And they may come from a background in which that is not perceived as being acceptable, or at least that's not perceived as being acceptable without some kind of good reason. And an exorcism might be a culturally acceptable way of dealing with it. Similarly, um, there's a debate going on around the appropriateness of conversion therapy and permitting that. So practices to try to change someone's gender identity or their sexual orientation. And um, shockingly, there are some um, groups who will offer exorcism as a means of achieving that. And at the moment, that is still lawful, although there are plans to change um, the legality of conversion therapy. And it's to be hoped that religious exceptions will not be included. So where are we with that, on that, um, trying to change the law to do with conversion therapy? Whereabouts are we and what is actually in place sort of making that happen? Well, the government have indicated that they um, have a commitment to prohibiting conversion therapy. However, there is still debate about what that's going to look like. And in particular, about whether there will be any sort of exemption for religious um, purposes and what the exemption will look like and the discussions are still ongoing and there's still no draft legislation so it's difficult to comment until there's actually draft legislation. Just talking from a personal point of view do, do you believe in exorcism um, and its place obviously within religion um, from your yeah from your perspective? I mean, I think broadly defined, exorcism is a part of so many people's religious and spiritual practices that it would be impossible and inappropriate to try and prohibit it in any sort of free society. Um, deliverance ministry is part of the doctrine of the Anglican Church. And as we practice it, I have obviously um, no no problem with, with my own denomination. Um, although I would stress that within an Anglican context, actually a major exorcism, so trying to free a person from a demon, should be extremely rare and it should only take place, one, with the special permission of a bishop and two, um, 
with uh, medical advice having been sought beforehand and there should be a great deal of care taken to make sure that you're not trying to perform an exorcism for somebody who is in fact uh, suffering from mental illness. Where do you feel that it, you know the future lies for for it? In terms of exorcism generally and regulation? Yeah. I mean I think we have to be um, better at having the conversation and better at getting a balance between on the one hand respecting people's freedoms and understanding that people have lots of different ideas, lots of different spiritual practices, and not othering things just because they appear strange to us in some ways. But on the other hand, recognizing that we're all part of the same society. People might have beliefs in exorcism, even if we happen not to personally, and they can be the person that we're standing next to at the supermarket or the person who, who you know works with us. And vulnerable people deserve to be protected. So Adults shouldn't be subject to things that they're not giving free and genuine consent to. And children should not be subject to any treatment which constitutes abuse in any circumstances. And so I guess just going back to the Victoria Climbier case, I mean, can you talk from, obviously there's a lot of problems in, in her support and care and obviously that's very well documented. Um, and only a small part of that is actually about the church and the exorcism that was taken place. Can you just talk a bit about that kind of clash in responsibility and perhaps where you've just talked about that freedom? People have a freedom to believe in in what they choose and, and kind of how that actually had an impact in that case. Yes, I mean, this case was quite tragic. Well, very tragic in many respects. But one of the saddest things was that people externally mistakenly ascribed practices and behaviors which were not normal as being normal because they assumed that uh, things were standard within a particular community. And those assumptions were incredibly misguided. I mean, of course, even if things had been normal within a particular community, that would still be no reason to tolerate child abuse. Um, but effectively, the bottom line was a little girl did not get the protection and support that she deserved simply because she happened to come from an African family. And that was things were treated as being normal and acceptable by external people who didn't really understand and didn't feel able to ask the appropriate questions. And do you feel that is one of our the biggest challenges perhaps within our society is that lack of understanding and that ability to be able to challenge, which is why we find in these extreme cases um, it being problematic and, and detrimental to people's health and well-being? I think so. I mean, I think there's a problem of a lack of knowledge about the diversity of the different beliefs and cultural practices and a greater understanding of our neighbours, of whoever we are, um, can only be beneficial. And clearly for professionals, for police officers, social workers, teachers, everyone else, the more we understand about the diversity of our context and the more that we're talking to people rather than about them, then the better that has to be for everybody involved and also clarity about what isn't normal what are red flags for abuse better understanding of that has to be a positive thing for everyone okay and within your work as a reverend is it do you see uh, people requesting exorcisms or that challenge um, in your practice absolutely and I think 
one of the challenging things can be saying no in an appropriate and sensitive way. Um, because certainly from my own spiritual viewpoint, just because somebody believes that an exorcism is the answer to their problems, that's not a reason necessarily to collude with that and go along with it. Because my view would be that you can do a lot of damage to somebody. You can affirm an idea that something is caused by something spiritual when it's really not and cause a lot of distress because if you've gone along with convincing someone that, for instance, their depression is caused by a demon, you perform an exorcism and they're still suffering as much very soon afterwards as they were before, they're going to be in a worse place and they're perhaps going to be even more hopeless than they were before. So from my point of view, do no harm is a really important doctrine. And where would you, you know, from, again, from a personal perspective, where would you like to see it move? Or what's next for your research? Uh, in terms of my research, um, two, two strands of it, really. I mean, firstly, I think we need to have more conversations with faith, not just faith leaders, although including faith leaders, but also members of faith communities and to be part of this wider engagement in terms of religious and spiritual literacy and to get people on board. Because a lot of the really damaging and abusive practices happen behind closed doors. Sometimes it's not even religious ministers. For instance, in Victoria Columbia, it was family members who carried out the so-called exorcism. It wasn't something which happened in a church context. And the only way that we're going to get better about helping communities um, identify things which are problematic and do things, in a, enjoy their religious liberty, but in a, a safe and healthy way for everyone, is to be making them part of a conversation and to plan a way forward together. So certainly I'm looking at doing more research in terms of working alongside faith communities and also people who perhaps don't recognize themselves as part of a faith community but offer exorcism. If you Google it online, there are all sorts of independent spiritual practitioners who will offer to free your home or maybe even yourself from, from evil spirits. And secondly, I'm also quite interested in uh, some of the aspects of the legal history of all of this, about where we've come from and where we're going to. And I'm looking at the moment uh, at uh, the Salem witch trials and also some of the witch trials that have taken place uh, in England. Thank you so much, Helen. I mean, the subject is fascinating and, and I certainly feel like I've learned a lot. What would you say to people about exorcism? I think firstly, it's entirely legitimate to be curious. Um, it's a word and a set of ideas which really draw people in and there's nothing wrong with that. And actually, there's a great deal of good which can come from having some healthy, respectful conversations about the reality of other people's spirituality and practice. But do bear in mind that people who have these beliefs are not the other. They're the people that you live alongside and work alongside. And even if you have beliefs in exorcism yourself, your beliefs might be quite different from your friends, your colleagues, your neighbors, whoever else is in your life. And there's nothing wrong with exploring all of that. But do bear in mind that other people's spirituality isn't the conjuring. So on the one hand, um, give them respect and actually listen to what they really believe rather than ideas from the television or wherever else. But also, secondly, if you do have concerns, 
then maybe that's legitimate and maybe give them space if there's something they're worried about or that they don't feel should be happening to them to feel able to talk about that too. Helen, thank you so much for coming and chatting with us today. It's been really fascinating. If you're interested in finding out more about Helen's work, you can follow her on Twitter at HPM Hall or at Law and Beliefs. You've been listening to the Research Reimagine podcast by Nottingham Trent University. For all of the latest news from the research community at NTU, follow us on Twitter at NTU underscore research or sign up to our research newsletter by visiting ntu.ac.uk forward slash research. Thanks for listening.